title this morning is Wade in the Water. Wade in the Water. I think I can see. Praise God. Wade in the Water. The song Wade in the Water is an old Negro spiritual that describes the Israelites crossing the Jordan River to freedom. Harriet Tubman and other slaves sang this song as a warning to other slaves to get off the trail and into the water so that they wouldn't be attacked by dogs. We are going to wade in the water this morning as we remember our own baptism. Or if you have not been baptized, think about what you know about it and listen to what is taught today. And we pray that freedom would ring in this place today, God as we wade in the water. Again, the altar's open all day. Do what you want to do uh, today in the Spirit. Amen. All four Gospels relate this event. The synoptics tell the story. John tells of the story. John 1.28 tells us that Jesus was baptized in Bethany beyond or across the Jordan. Bethany beyond the Jordan is the word al-magtas, means baptism or immersion, is located in the Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. Jesus left his hometown and goes to the Jordan to get baptized. Baptizo is the word in Greek, and it means to dip or immerse in waters, to submerge. It's the sacred rite that signifies purification, initiation or identification of an individual with a leader, group, or teaching. Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he, that verb means that he is constantly taking away the sins of the world. What the Old Testament Lamb could not do, the Lamb of God is doing. Amen. Jesus' baptism served several purposes. Jesus joined with the believing remnant of Israel who had been baptized by John. He confirmed the ministry of John. He fulfilled the Father's will while the Father attested to the fact that Jesus was his son. His Messiahship and start of his ministry was publicly acknowledged. Matthew 3, the whole section, Matthew 3, 1 through 4, 11, is considered the king's preparation. And there are three parts. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, right? We, we've already spoke about that. Jesus' baptism, we speak about today. And Jesus' wilderness experience or temptation, which I believe is next week. I read verse 11 again in your hearing because John is setting the scene or setting the tone for Jesus' coming. It's almost like a prophetic declaration. Let me pause there because I, I just got something if someone, well, let me just brag on Corey for a moment. Corey, as, a, as a, a prophet myself, Corey is one of the most accurate prophets I've been around. Mm. And I've been around a lot of them. But he is one of the most accurate. He said something to me, I don't know, a month or whenever ago. And it was the most accurate thing I think I'd ever heard. So if he prophesies to you, please pay attention. If you don't understand, we as prophets don't understand everything we're saying. You need to ask God what the meaning is. Mm. We just hear from God and give it to you. Then you need to pray about it and trust God that God has the answer. We don't have the answer. We are not God. I'm going to say that again. We are not God. 
We point you to God. Amen. So don't come and say, well, I mean, you can talk about it and say, well, you know, but I'm just going to repeat what I just told you, right? Because I'm going to tell you, I don't know what I'm saying. You got to know, you got to ask God. But I, I really wanted to say that. I don't know why this is not in my notes, but God is, is instructing me to tell you that when the prophet speaks, you must then go to God and distinguish what is good and right. Also, the word, the prophetic word must be backed by this word. If I tell you you're going to get a million dollars, well, I better find it somewhere in this word that you're going to get a million dollars. Or you better tell me I'm crazy. And don't receive it. Right? I've, I mean, people have had, I've had people speak over me. I've heard people speak over other people. And they look at them and they say, I don't receive that. I, that's my favorite statement. I don't receive that. Anybody who knows me <laughs> will tell you that if they say you sick, you this, you that, I'll just tell them I don't receive that. And so it doesn't get in my spirit because I don't receive it. Amen. I just gave you a new trick for the week when you go to work and somebody gets on your nerves and, and calls you a name. Or say, don't cuss them out now. Just tell them you don't receive it. John did not want to baptize Jesus initially. John knew that Jesus was more righteous than him. And although they were cousins, listen to this. John did not know Jesus was the Messiah until after he baptized him. That is based on John 1, 31 through 34. Read it. Where John said he did not know Jesus, but the one who sent him told John that the Messiah would be the one who the Spirit rests upon. Now, we will expand upon, expound upon this later, but we see baptism portrayed in Scripture in many ways. There's a Jewish baptism, which is a ceremonial cleansing. There's John's baptism, which was pre preparation for the coming Messiah. Spirit baptism, supernatural work of the, of the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism, a ceremonial act instituted by Christ that depicts union and identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. We'll get into that a lot more later. Baptism by fire, which is spirit. Uh, baptism at Pentecost and maybe even the judgment at the second coming of Jesus. And then Jesus' baptism, an act of ceremonial righteousness. He was the sinless lamb. So this was not about redemption. He was being consecrated for ministry. My Geneva Bible puts it this way. Christ's full consecration and authorization to the office of mediator is shown by the Father's own voice and a visible sign of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but when people talk about you in a good light, how does that make you feel? Sometimes I don't take compliments well. But just to know that people adore you, just to know that people care about you. Think of your own parents, and this may not be a good thought for some, but think about your own parents. If you did have parents who spoke truth over you, who spoke life over you, I see this as the father speaking life over his son and proclaiming to everyone, this is my boy. This is my boy. But for you, ladies, this is my girl. Look at her. Look at him. I'm so proud to be her father. And if you have one like me, you know that you have to turn to Jesus as your father. 
Verse 15 talks about fulfilling all righteousness. Matthew uses the word righteousness as an ethical righteousness, being in harmony with the will of God. And this is a major theme of the Old Testament. God's will was for Jesus to be baptized by John. Therefore, they were both fulfilling all righteousness by submitting to God's will. Verses 16 and 17 are reference to total immersion uh, when it says he just went up out of the water. Descending of the Spirit of God fulfilled the sign of the prediction of the Messiah. The dove came on Jesus and remained. The anointing remained. The dove is a symbol of innocence and purity. Doves also served as a sin offering in Israel's day. When you have doves, they're loyal animals. They're faithful to the end. We, we call them dove's eyes. Meaning you're faithful to the end. The spirit longs to hover and overshadow us with his power. The voice from heaven was that of the father. This was verbal approval. This was his public approval of his son. A love letter, if you will. <laughs> the father's voice both qualified and identified Jesus as the son of God. There are many children but he is the unique son of God. I always like to say that, that God has no grandchildren. <laughs> We're all children of God. Mm. There were two other instances where the father's verbal approval occurred in Matthew 17, 5 at the transfiguration. And again in John 12, 28, prior to the crucifixion after his triumphal entry. The words... One author says that God spoke, identified Jesus as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. The term son of God was one that God used of David's descendants who would follow him on Israel's throne. Several references to that. Jesus, the Davidic Messiah. The son is baptized. The father speaks. The spirit descends. The son submits to the ordinance or sacrament, as we call it in the Wesleyan church. The spirit rests upon him and the father voices his pleasure. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What a beautiful love letter of affirmation from God. I want to turn our attention to some themes of baptism. Robin Jensen, in her book, Baptismal Imagery in Early Christianity, Ritual, Visual, and Theological Dimensions, was one of my textbooks when I was a student at Asbury Theological Seminary. And I absolutely fell in love with this book. Now, listen to what I say. Don't do what I do. We should never say that. Don't, are these your parents? Don't say that to them. Okay. <laughs> so I have five degrees, and I haven't read very many books through in my entire academic career. Don't do that. And you know, we're starting a school here, so read the books. I've gotten really good at skimming. Some schools teach you how to skim, right? Can I get a witness? <laughs> Don't leave me hanging out here by myself. I read this book through and through, and it touched my life. So we're going to get into these five themes, but let me mention that baptism is a, is a serious thing. We're going uh, to baptize next week, so we're talking about our two sacraments, right? We're, we're going to do communion at the end, uh, <clears throat> but baptism and communion are our two sacraments. But this is a serious thing. They did a lot of stuff 
in early Christianity that I'm going to talk about today that we don't necessarily do now. But I want you to understand the significance of this. And at times during the next few moments, I'm going to ask you to remember your baptism. And I'm going to ask you to pause. And, I'm, and if you've never been baptized, I want you to listen to the words I say and think of the images of people being baptized and think about that and process that in your mind. But I want you to participate in that way this morning. And I want, when you think of your baptism or think of being baptized, that I want something to happen in you. We've been praying for that, right, Anderson? That something would happen in you as you do it. I preached about this uh, one time and a lady in a wheelchair she's deceased now her i anointed everybody at the end of service i don't know that we'll do that today but i'll hear what the lord has to say but everybody in the church came to be anointed and i walked back thinking i was going to go to her so she wouldn't have to come to the front and her husband as he wheeled her to the front he said no 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 she told me to bring her to the altar she she had been baptized in the jordan river and she said she was rebaptized during that message that day hmm. That God had touched her that much. And probably maybe a month later, she passed away. Hmm. <laughs> He's a good God. I'm going to quote Jensen a lot, uh, in, particularly in these first couple of themes. But let me just give you some more information first. She says, immersion in water or a thorough soaking by pouring is the basis for cleansing in the baptismal ritual. However, prior to that, are several preliminary acts that also serve a cleansing purpose, even to prepare the body to enter the bath. These pre-bath rites included exorcism, offering salt to catechumens, blowing on them, and then a series of ascetical practices taken on by candidates themselves, like fasting and almsgiving, abstaining from sex, not sleeping, not bathing, and a spoken renunciation of Satan while in some places standing on a goatskin or haircloth shirt. Once inside the baptistry, candidates disrobed and in some instances were anointed with the oil of exorcism before entering the font. In addition to these individually administered rites, the baptismal water itself might be exorcised prior to being consecrated, end quote. They also ceased to, to bathe, I said that, right, for a certain period of time and had all-night vigils. Exorcisms were done uh, to make sure candidates were pure for baptism. This was a process, not a single act. Salt was given to ward off demons. And the baptismal fonts were placed in such a way as to be the focal point of the sanctuary. One pastor friend of mine has their font right in the center of the church, so no one can miss it. Baptism is a serious thing. Dr. Dean Blevins, one of my uh, professors at Asbury, he said this, the sacrament of baptism actually marked an initiation into the next phase of the salvation journey. Baptism reflected a profound act that marked a commitment to this new life, a living into the fullness of being a disciple of Jesus. Yet baptism never completed the journey since discipleship, even as the member of the body of Christ, proved a lifelong task implication. From a Wesleyan perspective, the early church's emphasis on living a baptized life incorporated the full embrace of holiness of heart and life as the telos of baptismal living. 
theme number one, cleansing from sin and healing. Baptism cleanses us, purifies us from sin. It washes away our sin. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can get excited about anything else, but I can get excited about that. It washes away our sin. Baptism also heals. Three healing stories using water were Naaman in 2 Kings 5, the paralytic of John 5, and the man born blind in John 9. The man who Jesus made a mud pie. Remember that guy? Spit in his face. Okay. And told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Tertullian, the great North African uh, church father who taught us about the Trinity, believed that all scriptural accounts mentioning or using water were references to baptism. I.e. the flood, Moses striking the rock, Jesus washing feet, etc. The three healing stories I mentioned attest not only to baptismal purification, but also to its healing power. Jensen says the relationship of sin and sickness, in addition to the associations between curing illness and casting out demons, is particularly evident in the New Testament accounts in these healing stories. The synoptic gospels place the story of the paralytic within the context of a dispute about whether Jesus may forgive sins, especially when his forgiveness has a byproduct of bodily healing. See, Jesus was forgiving sins before he went what? To the cross. <laughs> he was healing, doing good, and forgiving sins before he went to the cross. Amazing. The narrative of the healings of the blind men in Matthew, and especially of Bartimaeus and Mark, credit the men's faith as the basis for their cure. Lord, help us. Help us to increase our faith. By comparison, at the beginning of John's version of Jesus' healing the blind man, Jesus refutes the accusation that sin was the cause of the man's infirmity. Moreover, in John's account, Jesus makes a healing poultice with spittle and clay and tells the man to wash it off in the pool of Siloam. Healing from illness or bodily impairment and cleansing. Theme number one, take a moment and remember your baptism. Number two, incorporation into the community. I want to know, do we do this well at Emmaus? Do we love those who join our community? Do we love them well? Do we incorporate them into the community well? The thought is that when we get baptized, we are baptized into the community, into the body of Christ, into the church universal, a new clan, a new tribe, a new family, a new race, and a new class of people. Through baptism, we are changed in our self-definition and social location. Through baptism, we have a new identity, a new status. We also gain a new home. We're foreigners here on the earth, and our home is in heaven. One thing the early Christians did to seal this idea was to embrace new members with a holy kiss. Jensen says the newly baptized are also referred to as flocks of sheep and schools or catches of fish. 
Those who perform infant baptisms a lot emphasize this community aspect. Although the baby has no idea what's going on, it becomes the responsibility of the community to take care of the child. And I would say we are responsible for each other, even as adults. So as a community, listen, gang, we're a new race. And it has nothing to do with the color of your skin. The word race was created by man to oppress a certain people. But when we're baptized in the community of God, we become a new race, a different people, a peculiar people. And we should act like it. And when we don't act like it and we judge people who don't look like us, who don't smell like us, who don't have the, 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 the same sexuality as we have or whatever, whatever it is we're judging people on, God didn't tell us to judge people. Hear me. God didn't tell us to judge sin. He told us to judge the Christian. That we should actually, so this whole thing about don't judge me, no. Well, if you say you're in the body of Christ and you're in the, we're in the same community, actually we are supposed to judge each other. Amen. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. We are not supposed to hold signs outside the church or at the mall and tell sinners they're going to hell. We're supposed to show them the love of Jesus. We're supposed to be different. Why do we look the same? We're supposed to, ch to change and be a community that's loving and helpful and kind. I tell people all the time in, in the workplace, I'm co-vocational, so in the workplace, we don't have to go and have uh, uh, prayer meetings and Bible studies. Can you just not cuss out your co-worker when you go to work? Can you be kind to people? Can you smile at people and let them know you're not a curmudgeon? Look it up. Can you just do that? It really is simple, people of God. We make it too complicated. Just get out of yourself and be who God has called you to be. Empty yourself and your feelings and run after Jesus and other people will be attracted to you because you're attracted to him <laughs> and because he lives in you. I was just going to teach today, but I feel like preaching. We're a new community, a new race of people. God is our father and the church is our mother. We are brothers and sisters. We are adopted heirs and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We're priests, we're prophets, we're kings. We are saints of God. And we ought to act like it. For by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us, we were all baptized into one body whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. Would you remember your baptism? Theme number three, sanctification and illumination. Baptism, Jensen says, corresponded to two distinct gifts, forgiveness of sin and the receipt of the Holy Spirit. 
Jensen also posited the earliest non-canonical records show baptism conferred two distinct benefits, a cleansing from sin and a sealing of the spirit. We must be born of water and the spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Something changes in us when we get baptized. Come on, can I get a witness? Anybody, anybody remember your baptism? Something is different should be about us. Uh, we baptized a man last year who wanted to be rebaptized. He was he's probably in his 60s or so. And when he came to be anointed that day, he just cried like a baby. I asked him why the tears. He just felt so moved to to get in that water again and it changed him. It did something to him. Something changes in us. We have new vigor. We have a new awakening. We have new sight and new perspective and Lord knows we need new sight. <laughs> We need new perspective. We need to be awakened in so many ways, and baptism can do that for us. Sanctification is the process of being in union with Christ so that we can become like Christ. This begins with our confession of faith and continues through our baptism until we meet Jesus face to face. To be sanctified is to be set apart. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. Ephesians 2.10 Early Christians believed the Spirit was transmitted in the baptismal waters. Uh, th this has been debated and is controversial, but I love the argument because it forces us to study and see that God accomplishes his plans in so many ways that man has no clue how to guess or discern. We don't know nothing. We think we know so much. We don't know anything. We're going to be so surprised when we see Jesus. Hopefully not, because we'll just be so joyful and just so happy to be there that we won't be like, oh, I didn't know she got in and he got in. <laughs> no, I think it's not going to be like that, right? Because that, that's a human thought, right? But I just believe we're, we're going to be so surprised because we guess. We study, we study, we study, but we still guess. Only God knows, but he reveals it. He reveals his word through his prophets. Look that up. We know that some in the New Testament received the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands post-baptism, right? In Acts 8, in Samaria, Peter and John laid hands on them who had only been baptized in water, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. When baptized, or when you believe, Paul in his discussion with the 12 disciples in Ephesus in Acts 19, Paul asked if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They said, what spirit? They had no clue. Paul taught a bit, then baptized them in the name of Jesus, laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And even before baptism, we see the Gentiles received the Spirit before baptism in Acts 10, 44 through 48. Early Christians believed the Holy Spirit was also transmitted through the anointing oil. And this was one of the rituals of baptism. The gift of the Spirit is enlightenment or knowledge. You are anointed by the Holy One and you know all things, 1 John 2.20 tells us. The gift of the Spirit. We must recognize, how many of you know your spiritual gifts? If you don't, you should. How many? Raise your hand, raise your hand. We need to do a class on spiritual gifts. 
We must first recognize when we're going through spiritual gifts tests that the first gift is the spirit himself. Mm. <clears throat> and most times we ask the spirit for gifts. So we're looking for the gift and not the giver. Mm. So be enlightened even this morning that we must seek the giver and not just the gifts that the giver gives. It'd be a shame to just love your parents at Christmas. Maybe some of y'all didn't get gifts. <laughs> but it certainly would be a shame. I want you to take a moment and remember your baptism. Close your eyes and remember your baptism. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water wait in the water wait in the water children wait in the water God's gonna trouble the water look at yourself waiting Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. And when you come out of the water, you're free. <laughs> I pronounce freedom over you. You've come out of the water. You're free. Theme number four is dying and rising. <laughs> you've risen now. You're dead to sin. And now you're ri you've risen. So, uh, Romans 6, 3 through 11. We participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. Dying and rising. And it reads, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into, into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We too may live a new life. Hmm. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Set free from sin. Sin is dead. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Mm. Death no longer has mastery over him. The yes. death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. <laughs> dead to sin, but alive to Christ. <laughs> 
baptism. We die like Jesus died. We, we're raised like Jesus is raised. We're free. Indeed. Nobody can give you that kind of freedom. No one can give you that kind of freedom. Because you could be locked in jail, locked in a prison camp, and still be free. Jensen, in our book, goes on to make the connection that figures of resurrection from death in included Noah, Elijah, Enoch, Jonah, Daniel, the three Hebrew boys, Ezekiel, raising those dry bones, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the widow's son. John 3, 1 through 8 talks about spiritual rebirth. You must be born again. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. You know, he was on the council. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was supposed to be a teacher of the law. And Jesus kind of, you know, threw some shade at him. And he was like, don't you know this stuff? And Jesus in verse 5 says, very, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my sayings. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Remember your baptism. Take a moment. Theme number five, new creation. Baptism at the beginning of new creation. We know we've taught, been taught, if you've gone through the new members class or whatever we call that class. What do we call it? Basics, pardon me. Excuse me. I'm old school. Basics class. Pardon me. Cut that out. Can we cut that out? Can we... Of the recording. That the biblical themes go from creation to fall to redemption to new creation right? Baptism as a theme of new creation. The neophytes, Jensen says, are returned to the status of Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed. I just need you to ponder that for a moment. The status of Adam and Eve before the fall. Baptism does all this. And joined with Christ, the new Adam. There's a cosmic significance to this. There's an eschatological, relating to death, judgment, and final destiny or end things, theme here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. New creature, some versions say, right? The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I always thought this verse meant just dead to sin and new in Christ, but I think it means so much more. It has cosmic implications. The Bible tells us, takes us from creation to new creation, and baptism shows us the way. Baptism joins us with Christ, and we will one day share his bodily resurrection just as he shared our physical death. Jensen says, through baptism, the divine image is drawn toward perfection. 
So my question to you this morning is, how can we as Christians live our baptism? Can we live out these themes of baptism in our everyday lives? I need you to ponder this. Write that down. I need you to ponder this. I polled some ministry entrepreneurs, and I don't know if, I, if Pastor Nikki was one of these. I polled. I can't remember, but she was one of my ministry entrepreneurs I worked with. And um, they said this is how they live out their baptism. So I want you to sense what I'm saying here. Maybe even close your eyes if you want to. You don't have to, but... One said, while meeting with God in the shower. Another said, while swimming in warm oceans, warm oceans being rebaptized, while remembering your first baptism. Another said, while connected to vocation. Another said, when there is synergy between community partners. Another ministry entrepreneur said, while proclaiming the good news of God, through word and deed, evangel evangelize through how we live. Another said, by showing our conviction to God, how we allocate our time and money. New creation, time for the church to be turned inside out. The pandemic forced us outside the walls, the outside the box. One pastor I polled said, it looks like loving God and people, praying consistently and dying to self daily. Another pastor summed it up so well in her beautiful words. When I think of baptism, I think of new life, public confession of faith, and a commitment to walk from a washed perspective. To live this would mean walking, believing this has already happened. On a personal note, it means that we own our faith. Our faith informs our thoughts, actions, and motivations. It serves as the guiding framework for our lives. It means that our lives look different. A public confession is more than just verbally proclaiming Christ. It is living in such a way that people know we're clothed in Christ. Walking in new life means that we no longer walk under shame and guilt, but with our heads held high, knowing that we're forgiven. It means we trust that God has a good purpose for our lives. And that, that purpose is achievable through the Spirit at work in us. End quote. How can you live your baptism? Each and every day, how can you live your baptism? How can people see these marks, these five themes in your life? At work, at play, at your home at the grocery store, at the gas station, wherever you might go, how can people see these marks in your life? How can people know that you belong to God? We sang that earlier, I belong to God. How can people know that in your life? I want you to ponder that this week. Would you stand with me?